Okay, well, everyone, my name is Jason Vincent, and I am an alcoholic. <laughs> I am coming up on 20 years of sobriety in about six years from now. Um, so it, actually six years and a little bit of change. Next month, I'll be turning 14. But I love saying that it's, it's 20 because, you know, high aspirations. Um, I, I have been continually attending meetings and more so secular meetings in the last, uh, oh, I don't know, five, 10 years. Um, I, I gravitate to that. Uh, I, I got sober in rural uh, Missouri, which is what we call a red state. I know um, uh, the, the politics of, of left and right and conservative and progressive, the color system is different in the U.S. I don't know why we have to be all different, but uh, it's a very rural and conservative area. And here I am, an atheist, getting sober um, and being constantly told I'm never going to make it. It's fun going back and visiting them and going, how many, how much time do you have? Okay, talk to me again when you've reached 10 years, 11 years, 12 years, 14 years. So um, I don't say it to be snide or snippy. It's just uh, there's a lot of different paths to sobriety. They all run parallel, but they don't necessarily all run identically in the same direction. Um, that's basically mine. I, I don't want to go too deep into my own story uh, that may be saved for another day because I really have a lot to cover here on the topic of uh, addiction models. One of the things I want to say kind of off the bat, like a little bit of housekeeping, um, if you have a misunderstanding of, if there's something that I have said that I didn't say very clearly, go ahead and interrupt or send me a little message and say, hold on, slow down. I didn't catch that. And then I could expand upon that and make sure that you understand. However, if you're wanting to ask questions like challenging or pushing back or trying to redirect, um, write those questions down. I do want to address them. I do want to talk to them, but I'd like to get through my presentation first so that we can go back and address those issues. So if it's if it deals with clarity, go ahead and ask that question so I can make sure my position's clear. And if it's not, jot it down, remember it, however you want to do that, and then we'll come back around and definitely address that. I don't want to leave you uh, hanging uh, uh, or, or missing any opportunity to ever share some thoughts uh, or even some criticisms. Um, <clears throat> so I'm looking at models of addiction, and this kind of overlaps, of course, with uh, uh, alcoholism and not only going to look at models, but it's also going to kind of follow a historical uh, trend. We're going to go kind of back, you know, to the olden times, if you will, long before AA, long before the Washingtonians. And if you don't know who the Washingtonians are, you should definitely jot that down and learn from them because it's a great part of recovery history, especially secular recovery history. But long before then, we can go back to probably one of the earliest models of addiction, which is a religious model. Now, the religious model often applies that there were demons and the demons were responsible for bad behavior. Um, I'm confused by three numbers I didn't hear, 26 and 14. I'm not sure what you mean by that, uh, Brian. Um, so we're going to look at the religious model first, and then we're, we're talking about demons and demon possession, because obviously everyone knows 
the reason people get stupid is because of demon possession, right? We'll always blame it on the devil. The devil made me do it. That was the, the answer to everything. And um, it would be... <laughs> It would be just a, a, a postmark in the history of humanity if it didn't still exist today. This is a concept, especially among Christians, that still believe that addiction is related to demon possession. There's also another version of that. And, and I should probably add, when I'm talking about these addictive models, um, some of these models are more of a general idea with multiple models underneath them. Some of the models will actually fit in different models. Some premises of a model will fit in different models. So I'm not proposing this as an exhaustive list. There's different interpretations of this. I've done quite a bit of research, and everybody else tries to categorize these differently. The ones that I'm presenting are just the ones that I, I did so to try to make it a little bit more digestible in the presentation. But religious model, this is a good example of not only is there demons, but also the, the, the Christian value believes that it is idolatry. So you see, the problem is, is that humanity all are built to worship God. And if you're not worshiping God, then you're worshiping something else. And addicts, like alcoholics, are worshiping alcohol or worshiping drugs. And so that's the cause of alcoholism is a misguided worship or, or idolatry in worshiping a false god. Uh, so the solution to the religious model, of course, is, is clear. There's torture, uh, starvation, uh, flogging, an exorcism to get the demons out. Um, a lot of these are, are uh, sadly still very common today in, in considered potential cures uh, among a lot of uh, religious people. Um, and of course, the cure is going to be prayer and worshiping God himself or some sort of, of re-devotion uh, to the relationship with God. And there's this really interesting kind of uh, dichotomous uh, 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 punchline to this, <clears throat> that if you get sober with the religious model in, in place, then praise God. God got you sober. It was a miracle. It couldn't have happened any other way. It was only God that could do it for you. And if you don't do it, then it's because you're wrong you didn't have enough faith, you know, not even God could have fixed you. You're such a mess up. You're such a ruinous person. So, um, you know, heads God win, tail you lose uh, is really set up in the religious model. Now, we became a little bit more enlightened as a society and realized, no, it's silly. There's no demons that causes addiction. We're smarter than this. The reason we have addiction, the reason these people are addicted to alcohol is because they're bad people. And this is the moral model. The moral model says that there's a defect of character. There's something wrong innately within their character that causes them to drink. They're just, they're just bad people. And so um, interesting research that I found on this. Uh, those people that have a tendency to actually lean in on and endorse the moral model, men more so than women, Younger people, more so than older people, that actually kind of shocked me. I thought it might be the other way around. But younger people are more likely to endorse a moral model of you're an addict because you're bad. Uh, but we also have religious people and, and uh, politically conservatives. They often will more likely endorse the moral model of you're an addict because you're a bad person. 
uh, compared to uh, more politically liberal people. Um, the cause of the addiction, of course, is a moral failing and a weakness of character. Uh, it is associated with gluttony, sloth, envy, pride, and anger. Uh, the cure to, to this addiction, underneath this model, of course, is going to be willpower, discipline, living a virtuous life. And if you could do these things, if you can pull yourself by your bootstraps and act as a virtuous, well-disciplined person, then you could actually be cured from from this disease, from from alcoholism. Um, now, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this book or this research, and it's called Daytop Villages. And this was starting in California, and it was a almost like a cult like rehab center where you had these uh, very inspirational, fanatical kind of leaders and where the followers were, were so devoted um, and just you know, die hard fans of this, they actually would lose about half of their, their uh, 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 people coming in within just the first month or two. But they focused on this hard discipline, a lot of violent uh, uh, compliance, and shaming people for being bad. And they, they built this whole model, uh, this whole cult model on the moral model. Ironically enough, Nancy Reagan, uh, I don't know if you guys remember or know who that is. Nancy Reagan was the wife of our president here in the US of Ronald Reagan back in the 1980s. And she started this big campaign of just say no. And she was inspired by the work that was done at this cult-like rehab facility that ended up getting shut down and a lot of uh, prosecution. But the principles of the moral model that was used underneath that name, Daytop Villages, still exist today. In New York, they've got several different facilities that emphasizes the moral model of recovery or, or therapy and treatment. And of course, the fact that Nancy, Nancy Reagan had posted to everyone that the, the solution is just to say no made millions and millions and millions of addicts and alcoholics just might, like me fucking facepalm in absolute disbelief going, wow, that's all it took. We got all these people who've been addicted for you know decades of their life and the solution was so simple as just saying no. Of course not. She was ridiculous. The theory was ridiculous. And the moral model uh, is not necessarily, it's an outdated one, even though it is practiced today. Now, here comes basically the main course. And we've got other, uh, other models to look at. But as far as the main course here is the disease model. Now, the disease model has a very interesting history and, and how it came to be. One of the things I want to introduce you to is uh, a gentleman named Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Rush in the 17, uh, late 1700s, early 1800s was a doctor. He was also uh, one of the signatures on our Declaration of Independence uh, in the US. Uh, he also acted as a Surgeon General for George Washington's Union, or, or uh, not Union Army, uh, Colonial Army. So very, very high educated, very well respected. Uh, he actually was anti-slavery. He was for 
encouraging women's rights before that was ever even thought of a thing. And he was the first one that I have found in my research that actually advocated a disease model. Now he advocated it because there was this seemingly loss of control that addicts had, that regardless of what they did, regardless of the circumstances and the consequences of their behaviors, they couldn't stop. And so he thought that this isn't a thing of choice. This isn't a thing of decision and character. There has to be something physically going on that's causing this. And he introduced the concept of it being a disease model, not a moral model. Now, this is 160 years before AA ever becomes a thing. Um, and, and so here we are with the original idea of a disease model with Benjamin Rush. Now, AA members, and this is kind of interesting, AA members um, advocated this disease model, mostly because it was very baffling at the beginning. I mean, we we've kind of got an idea of how to fix things and how to work things. We know the social support is working, but defining addiction seemed awful confusing. Uh, so what they did was, is they would call it an illness. They would call it an allergy, a malady. But one of the things that from world headquarters of, uh, of uh, AA, they refused to call it a disease. Bill W. explicitly said multiple times, alcoholism is not a disease. All the literature that was available, even the doctors at the time, the psychiatrists and MDs at the time, would not dare call alcoholism a disease. Now, what was odd about that is there, just after World War I, there was a big change in how hospitals were ran. And you just didn't go to the hospital when you're about to die. We started inventing antibiotics and other kinds of medicines and so forth and realized that there was a concept of preventive medicine, a way of being able to avoid disease. And, and you didn't actually go there in a life or death situation, like, like an emergency room, you actually got some kind of care. And we expanded the understanding of medical knowledge and what is disease and what is pathogens and, and research was doing great. And so what was actually being happening is none of the doctors at the time, nor anybody that was in any kind of founders of AA wanted to do was call this a disease because nobody was qualified to do that. So they avoided it like the plague. But the membership started calling it a disease. Now, in the big book, it does mention it as a spiritual illness, which if we look at the disease model, we have essentially three categories. We have the medical or biological disease. We have the psychological or psychopathology uh, version of the disease and a spiritual disease. AA took camp on the spiritual disease that it was a spiritual solution that was needed to solve a spiritual problem. So even though they, as AA, as a, as a network, was, was telling people that this is a spiritual disease that needs a spiritual solution, the membership has taken a whole different perspective on this and thinking that this is a medical disease. I have a physical problem. <clears throat> and it happens mostly through the grapevine. The AA grapevine. If you're not familiar with it, uh, they've often called it a meeting in print. It's a publication by AA or AA endorsed literature that has a lot of testimonies of individuals. 
Now, the very first issue of, a, of the grapevine and the very first article in that issue was titled, Two Yale Savants Stress Alcoholism, a True Disease. So before, nobody in any political position uh, uh, in AA has ever called this disease, but now you've got someone in the grapevine calling it a disease. So this is like a grassroots way of conceiving the disease model within AA because people really gravitated to it. And why not? Because before, we used to think we were demon-possessed. And then after that, you were telling us we were all a bunch of shitheads. We're just horrible dicks walking around being bad people. I like the idea of I'm actually, a, you know, I'm not a bad person trying to be good. I'm a sick person trying to get well. It allowed people to be able to forgive themselves for bad behaviors because they were underneath the influence. And it wasn't because they were bad. It's because they were sick. So it was very attractive to a lot of people. And it makes sense that that was the trend among the AA membership, but not in uh, anywhere in the literature or with the World Health Organization or the World Health <laughs> within the, uh, new, the uh, World Service Organization. Um, let's see. Oh, here's a wonderful thing. The Saturday Evening Post had presented an article talking about AA. It was one of the first ideas. That, so AA is now becoming popular. It's becoming part of the, the, the normal uh, nomenclature. People understand it. There's people, AA people running around everywhere. And so they do an article where somebody writes their story in the Saturday Evening Post about their experience with alcoholism. Now, when that person that was interviewed for the article, they never said anything about any kind of disease, anything about it being a disease, a malady, an illness, none of that. They just shared their own story like we often hear within the groups. Now, what's notable in that is that one of the readers responded to that article, right? They were so moved by that article, they wrote to the editor and it was published. And I want to read what this lady wrote. She said, I could see that horrible picture of an awful drunk on the front page. He couldn't get the drink to his mouth. He had a towel around his head, his hand, and he needed a shave. But from the very first, first paragraph, something happened to me. I realized that there are other people in the world who behaved and acted as I did, and that I was a sick person, that I was suffering from an actual disease. It had a name and symptoms, just like diabetes and tuberculosis. I wasn't entirely immoral. I wasn't bad. I wasn't vicious. It was such a feeling of relief that I wanted to know more about it. And with that, I think for the first time came the realization that there was something horribly, horribly wrong with me. Up to that time, I was completely baffled by my behavior and I never really stopped to think about it. So we have this person who just reads the article and interprets it as being a disease model. So obviously it has become very popularized and shared within the meetings and shared within other literature, even though the medical community, the psychological, psychiatry community, and even the founders and the leaders within the AA as an organization have refused to endorse any kind of disease model. Now, 
Um, I talked before earlier about there being the three types. The, there's the, the medical, that's the physical, and then there's the psychological and then the spiritual. Um, one of the things that the psychological perspective looks at um, would be things like schizophrenia, uh, autism, depression, bipolar disorder, as, uh, as Derek has here. Um, and so you, you have the psychological and psychiatrists that understand the maladies and pathology. However, nobody calls bipolar, anxiety, autism a disease. It's a disorder. So even the psychological perspective of the disease model really doesn't fit because within psychology, there are no psychological diseases. Now, the medical community have a little bit of a different uh, twist on this. And this is where psychology has played this dance of trying to run parallel with medical and then realizing it doesn't fit and going off on their own and realizing they lost a lot of science cred, then they work their way back. And there's this little dance between psychologists and the medical community and the perceptions of the public about those two fields. But the medical model often wants to look at something that's tangible, something I can poke with my finger, something that I can inject into the bloodstream, something that I can cut open, I can put a bandage on, something that I can measure and test and be able to know that there's an agent that's involved with a specific behavior. When there is no tangible thing, then they raise their hands and go, okay, it must be a brain thing, it must be a psychological thing, we'll hand them over to the psychologist. Like if you've got a pain, that's a legitimate pain, and the doctor can't find out the cause of the pain, they just throw their hands up and say, well, it's not a, it's not a medical problem, it's a psychological problem. Now, that doesn't mean the pain isn't real, it just means the doctor can't find it. So the medical model is trying to look at addiction, it gets really, really confused because we really don't have a clear connection or an agent that's all. I mean, we have the behavior of alcoholism, we have the poisonous effects of consuming large amounts of alcohol, but that's really not the disease, not like the way that cancer is, not the way that like TV is. So the medical community has a really hard time of trying to look and accept as the, the, the addiction as a, uh, as a disease model, if you will. But it's popular. People like us like to gravitate to that because it removes the judgment from us. It removes the stigma and it allows us to point a finger and say, that's what's wrong, instead of going, this is what's wrong. All right. So when it comes to the causes of the addiction model, a lot of them want to focus on the mesolimbic uh, pathways, and that deals a lot with the emotions within the brain. I can actually uh, show it to you here, not that it matters, this orange area right here, kind of the mesolimbic area. Um, but there's no trace of that actually showing up in any kind of fMRIs or anything else when it comes to addiction and addictive behaviors. But because it's tied in with emotions, we assume it has some sort of role to play in that. Um, but the cure to the to the uh, to the disease model is there is no cure. Um, there's only abstinence and long-term uh, 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 sobriety, uh, but there's no actual cure for the for this disease which again, really doesn't fit the medical model, um, especially when you look at some of the problems that the medical model has, and here they are. There's a prevalence of permanent remission over time. 
Did you know that most people that abuse alcohol will quit spontaneously without support, social support, without any recovery program around the age of 30? I'll say that again. Most people who have a problem and are problem drinkers from 18 to their 20s, most of them will quit on their own without any kind of recovery treatment uh, or medication. They will spontaneously quit. Uh, only a small number of alcoholics, 5 to 15%, continue the behavior after drinking alcohol, which does not support the disease model. Three, addiction has its highest remission rates rather than any other medical or psychological disorder. In other words, you take all of the other psychological conditions, the, the borderline, the, the narcissism, the, the anxiety, depression, bipolar, autism, all of them, alcohol has the, the longest and quickest uh, remission rate compared to all other maladies. People just get, they, they get sober a lot easier than it does for schizophrenics to stop hearing voices untreated. The majority of those that do quit, do so for practical and moral concerns, not because they actually feel sick. Most people quit because they don't like the judgment by people thinking the moral models. It's, uh, it's interfering with their income, their family relations. So for moral and practical purposes, most people will use that reason to quit. That doesn't fit a disease model. Now there's questionable data and uh, somebody had mentioned in the last uh, uh, hour, and, and I, I actually pulled out that article that they mentioned. Uh, one of the challenges to that article that Stanford produced is that it did a what's called a meta-analysis. They took a lot of studies that go all the way back to 1935, and they looked and they 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 try to find out out of all the different types of ways of getting sober and getting sobriety, you know, what was the most effective. Um, AA was the single greatest, most effective way to get sober for decades. Uh, and so it has a big history of, of success. The problem is, is that collecting data has been very, very difficult, mostly because AA is anonymous. You just can't come in and start doing studies and double blind studies and ask the questions. So a lot of the ways what they'll do is they'll take someone who is already in therapy or in treatment and follow them out of treatment and do follow-ups and see if they attend AA and then try to collect data from, from that perspective instead of just grabbing people off the street trying to figure out if they're a member or not. Um, so the those articles that supported the concepts of AA were very well welcomed and supported and applauded. Those that challenged against it didn't get published, which meant is that an absence of evidence is evidence of bias. So there was within the psychiatric community uh, a lot of bias towards AA, mostly because they didn't have a fucking clue how to take care of us. We figured out a way to take care of us, but they had no clue. So a lot of the research that was done at that time like all the way up to the 80s, so good 50 years, most of the articles and research that was done showed a very favorable light 
towards uh, towards AA and AA-like recovery programs, which again doesn't necessarily support the the uh, the, the disease model. Um, most quit without help, and disease does not spontaneously just end. Historically, addiction is as a disease is defined by the extreme cases. So again, when these researchers were looking at the, the case studies that they were doing on addicts and alcoholics, they were looking at the worst case scenarios. They weren't doing the ones that were weekend warriors or the ones that just had a compulsion to drink even if it was once or twice a year, or those that just compulsively drank every day but never to full intoxication. There wasn't a full range of research. There was only a few extreme cases that were looked at, and any success in that was marked as a, as a success across the board, which, again, doesn't support the disease model. Also, alcoholism is self-diagnosed. Nobody within the community of psychology or medicine will diagnose anybody as an addict or alcoholic. It is something that's self-diagnosed and uh, something that we would identify with which again, isn't supportive of the medical model or the disease model. There is some neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability for the neurons inside the brain to redevelop connectivity. So um, if there's minor damage within the brain, the brain can compensate and kind of grow back and fix uh, some of the damage that's been done. It's absolutely awesome. It's fascinating. We thought um, that couldn't happen, but neuroplasticity does exist. Uh, Derek, go ahead. Did you have a clarification question? Jason, there will always be problems with collecting data. And I'm just stepping in for a second. And I do, I love science. I'm a supporter of everything. But that is Cochrane data. And if, you, if you're a researcher in this, that's about the best you can get in a bad data field. And studying against all the other ones. So look, at the end of the day, if you're going to use something like that and start to tell me about how bad the data is, well, it's bad across all the models. But the Cochrane data you would accept is some of the best data you can collect for a scientific review. Would you agree with that? Um, there's a follow-up article where somebody actually challenged for that article. Uh, have you had an opportunity to read that yet? Is the best? Hold on. There is a, there's another published article, there's another published article that is a response to that article. Have you had a chance to read the, 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 no, I haven't argument? because my issue right and now, I, I have and I haven't either. So I'm, okay. I'm not going to be able to, but, to, to speak on that, on that specific. Well, would you agree that the Cochrane data for reviews like this is probably the best, it is the gold platinum standard within the U.S.? I will say this. Uh, if that is the only uh, issue that you're tied up on and none of this other data means anything to you. No, 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 no. You, you, you went straight into an argument to say the data and we all know the data is vague and an awful lot of these things. But I'm my friend, it's, it's I, I'm, pulling you, I'm pulling you on the fact that the article I published earlier okay, from Stanford right. Institute. At the beginning of the meeting, hold on, hold on. At the beginning of the meeting, I asked you to ask clarification questions. So the case I said something that was unclear. This is something that you, you, you're kind of posing an argument. And I may actually answer that question later on in the presentation. So if you could hold on to that thought, we could talk about that at the end. Okay, fair I, enough, I, I fair enough, my friend. I, 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 don't want you to, I don't want you to feel like you're being cheated your opportunity to share, but 
If I want to stick to if you're unclear about something I've said, instead of challenging some of the things I've Brian, do you have a clarification that you need? Uh, not a clarification. You just mentioned okay. it. Uh, um, is it Stanford Peel's article? It was uh, by Kelly, actually. Um, the article that you sent said that it was a different author, but the 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 first name author. I'm sorry, I didn't send an article. No, no. it wasn't you. It was the, the whoever sent the article about. There was an article that about the eight. article. Yeah, there's article about the article. I, I went in and actually grabbed the original article of the study. And again, it's multiple pages and I haven't had a chance to read it. And I, I, I do hope that I have saved that I, I will go and read it further. But on a brief overlook, I just noticed that uh, it, it, it included uh, uh, a meta-analysis of data that may be skewed. Maybe. I don't know for sure. I haven't had a chance to read it. But again, let's get back to uh, I'll finish up because I've got more models to get to. I, I knew that the medical model, the disease model, was, was going to, you know, get some get some feathers ruffled. I kind of expected that, so we're all good. Um, let's see. Oh, so neuroplasticity repairs brain connections without medical intervention. That happens naturally, which also does not support the disease model because most disease is a necrosis oftentimes of tissue that doesn't repair itself. It's often nature of disease where it doesn't spontaneously regenerate and repair itself. Uh, number nine, page 44 of the big book, we agnostics chapter, ironically enough, states that alcoholism is, quote, an illness which only a spiritual experience can conquer. It also calls it an allergy, without any evidence to support why it calls it an, an allergy, at least a half a dozen times. The scientific culture outside of AA began calling it a disease like tuberculosis, cancer, and heart disease. Also, and this was what I love of this quote, Bill Wilson said in an address to the National Catholic Clergy Conference on Alcoholism in 1961, and he says, and I quote, we have never called alcoholism a disease because, technically speaking, it is not a disease entity. He goes on to say, therefore, we do not wish to get in wrong with the medical profession by pronouncing alcoholism a disease entity. Therefore, we always called it an illness or a malady, uh, a far safer term for us to use. So Bill W., the founder, in 1961, so this is a good 25 years after the book has, has been built before the steps, you know, and he's saying, look, uh, the disease model, <laughs> I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole, uh, which I always found interesting because I, I had thought until I actually researched this that Bill W. endorsed a disease model, and apparently he did not. Now, if you guys have a copy of the 12 steps, uh, I hope you do. Because if you look at them, you'll realize that each one of them, except for the first step, Brianna, I knew you'd love this, except for the first step, steps two through 12 fit either in the religious model, the moral model, or both. None of the steps address the disease model. Now, if, if, AA is so supportive of a disease model, surely there should have been some approach or some concept or some idea where the solution would be a medical solution or, or some sort of uh, a disease model solution, but it's not. 
It still focuses on morality and religion. Now, I'm actually a fan of Strep's. I've done them. I had a sponsor. I've worked all 12 with my sponsor. I have worked with sponsees in very depth of, of working with Steps 2. So please don't misinterpret uh, my challenging this as me saying that it's not worthy or it's not without purpose. It is. But I think it may be for different reasons. And, and I'll get to that. Next is the biological model. Now, the biological model differs from the disease model. The biological model is more along the line of a genetic predisposition. So the idea that alcoholism is something that basically you're born with in your genes with and in the right environment can trigger an on uh, a full-blown uh, addiction to alcohol or addiction to, to anything, whether it be food, gambling, and so forth. Oh, I so wanted to talk about, I'll skip it. There's a great article that talks about the, the word origin of addiction that goes all the way back to the original Latin. And it come to find out that the first addiction that addiction word was based on had to do with addictive gambling, not about substances. So fascinating. It's great. Uh, I'll, I'll, if, if we hang on afterwards and I, and I can pull up the article, I'll try to do what I can to get, uh, get you guys a copy of it. But it's, it's a great uh, uh, origin story on the, the word addiction, where it comes from. But the... Um, the, the biological model also looks at the differences in addictive rates and alcoholic rates between men and women. Generally speaking, there are more men that are alcoholic per capita than women. However, the alcoholism in women seems to be more uh, deleterious. It's, it's more damaging. It does uh, a lot more uh, damage to them. We see differentiations between ethnicity. In, in, in different races, in different ages. So there's a biological component that seems to be involved in the uh, idea of addiction and biology as a model can explain a lot where morals and the disease model and the religious model never could, right? Uh, the one thing about the genetic uh, portion of this is, is problematic is um, there is not a addiction gene. More than likely, they're never going to find a addictive gene. What they're going to find is, is the right combinations of genes and the, and the right configuration and the right time and the right environment can create the likelihood of addiction. It's not so cold and simple like schizophrenia where we can go, hey, there's a gene. It, we see that and it interacts with this virus and it does so while she's pregnant and we can make these very clear lines drawn between. Uh, we don't necessarily see that with addiction. Um, oh, my, we keep moving along. The behavioral analysis model. So I don't know if you guys know who P.F. Skinner was, but he was very popularized in, in, in research of behaviorism, did a lot with pigeons and rats, and uh, you know would, would get them to do different tasks and so forth and reward them. and. At this time, cognitive psychology was out the window. You couldn't even think of that because you couldn't you couldn't measure, right? You couldn't put it in a lab, and I can't because your perspective and your experiences are completely subjective. They're completely your own. There's no way that we can map that out in science. So anything that's not tangibly being able to be recorded in a in a in a lab doesn't exist. And this is where 
psychology was gravitating more towards the medical and trying to legitimize their science. And then later they'll, they'll drift away. But with behavioral analysis, we see two interesting features. We see operant conditioning and classical conditioning. Now, this kind of goes back, if you guys remember, maybe back when the day you heard of Pavlov's dog, Pavlov's dog dealt with classical conditioning. And this is where a bell was associated with food. When the dog heard the bell, it began to salivate because it knew as soon as the bell rung, food followed, right? That was the initial study. So what B.F. Skinner did was they started doing all kinds of combinations of things. You do a light, you do a sound, you do a, 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 a changing of the, of, the, of, the, of the electricity, you shock them, right? You do all of these different things to either punish or reward them based on specific uh, um, uh, rewards and, and, and punishments. And they make these associations. Like when that horn goes off, I know that my cage is going to be electrified, right? When that, when that light goes off, I know that there's going to be a loud siren, right? So there's these connections that are made. And the way that applies to addiction and alcoholism is basically our triggers, right? I mean, for us alcoholics, I, I feel really bad for us because you don't see heroin being advertised on the Super Bowl, right? You know, they don't have big billboards all around, you know, the, the football stadiums advertising, you know, uh, meth, uh, meth amphetamines and, you know, like all the illicit and illegal drugs, you're not, you know, you can't go to your local store and pick it up, at least not legally. Um, alcohol is just advertised. It's everywhere. There's neon signs. And they know because of classical conditioning, you're more likely to drink beer if you are an alcoholic and you see a sign that says beer sold here. So the classical conditioning model of, of the behavioral model is that our brain is basically taught to make the association between these triggers and the reward of getting the alcohol, the good feeling that we had when we drink it. The other one, the uh, operant conditioning, is more that you get the reward for the behavior. So you're not associating it with objects and, and situations. You're associating it with your own behavior. If I do this thing, right, and I get rewarded for it, I'm more likely to do that same thing over and over again, right, with the immediate consequence of the payoff. Even though the long-term consequence is going to suck and it's going to hurt, the immediate consequence ingrains that into my behavior. So this actually also makes sense, right? The, the bio makes sense because you have the predisposition. This is actually some tangible evidence that shows that you have a reward for that behavior. And you're basically being taught and learned how to be an addict, right? So that's that model. Then there's the cognitive model. The cognitive model takes kind of what was said before. The cognitive model, again, now we're actually starting to look inside the brain. We're trying to figure out what our thinking is. There was a common phrase, I don't know if it's still around anymore, that our thinker is broken. That's why we're addicts. You know, We keep getting into trouble because of our stinking thinking. And so in a way, instead of seeing the trigger and behaving, we see the trigger and then a thought process is involved in convincing us to do the behavior. I was in a meeting just last night, and one of the uh, one of the alcoholics was there. And she had a slip, and she was talking about um, 
just out of force of habit, she pulled into the liquor store with the looks for her, got the beer, got the thing, got up to the cashier and realized, holy shit, I haven't drank in, in like a month. I'm doing really, really well. I should stop. And then she just had a, an immediate case of the fuckets. Right? Uh, just this one time, right? That's a cognitive distortion. There's something going wrong in the brain that the brain is telling them that this behavior is okay. It's justified that the roar is going to be greater than the consequences. And if you guys are an alcoholic like me, one of the cognitive problems that I had is I completely forgot the consequences. There was no consequences. I just remember the good times. I forgot that I went to jail. I forgot that I got beat up. All I could remember was the first part. I didn't play the tape out. So the cognitive model addresses what's going on as far as the distortion and the way that we think. The family model. Now, the family model kind of recognizes the influence of the others, but we're not talking about genetics on the family model. Now we're talking about early childhood. We find early childhood trauma and co-occurring psychological problems increases the likelihood of addiction. So, in fact, one of the most popular treatment styles, except especially for adolescent uh, drinking, is family therapy. It is by far the single most successful form of therapy to help uh, young alcoholics by therapy. Um, okay, now we're actually starting to get a little bit more smart on this. We're getting more enlightened. So now we come up with a sociocultural model. Sociocultural looks at the biology of the ethnicity. It's looking at the certain different thought patterns and, and way that we're thinking and behaving as the culture has taught us. We're looking at the family model and the development of the young kids growing up. And we're incorporating all of this into kind of a bigger ball that looks at all of these functionings and the social influences that we have in a bigger model by still connecting all of these other models into a bigger view, except for the moral and the religious. That's still kind of set aside. And we're really not looking at the disease model. We're looking at more of a inclusive model. The next one, and this is the one that seems to be the buzzword of the day. If you guys are in any kind of uh, relationship with people that you know or yourself, in any kind of treatment facility. If they're not talking about it now, they will be talking about it soon. This was developed by some sociologists and an anthropologist, I believe. And in sociology, you've probably heard on the news, if you've ever watched political news, they talk about political capital, right? There's social capital, uh, there's the social economic status, the SES, and these are things where, where people are ranked or, or evaluated based on how much capital that they have. Education is a form of capital. Money and income is a form of capital. There's cultural capital. What's your popularity? You could be, you know, Gandhi without any money and have a whole bunch of political and social capital. So this concept of capital from a sociology standpoint was this almost intangible way of measuring um, resources that an individual has that they can spend or use or benefit from. So it makes sense that they come up with the concept of recovery capital. So recovery capital helps to, uh, individuals try to identify what kind of resources does a person have 
that helps them stay sober. They know that employment is a positive recovery resource and helps and is considered recovery capital. Um, having an education, being involved socially with pro-social uh, sober groups. This is part of the, the capital that's used. Uh, doing selfless acts and getting involved in volunteerism. Um, there's, a, there's a whole list of things and the list keeps growing in this concept of, re, uh, of recovery capital as a way of trying to possibly look at that capital and where you spend your time and energy in investing in these recovery capitals to help improve your uh, recovery. Now, it's not necessarily a view of addiction, more so as a view of how you can successfully manage addiction. And what I mean manage is sobriety. Um, I use the word manage instead of saying the word cure. That's the buzzword going around today. The next model is the integrated biopsychosocial model. This is the one that says, fuck it. Everything in one big bowl, it's all inclusive. Every almost everybody's idea works. Let's put it all in. We can't just look at the addicts simply by their morals or simply by their religion or simply by their biology or their genetic makeup or the behaviors or the connections and the triggers. We have a complex individual with lots of different influences and different contributors to both the addiction and the recovery. So it's more of a dynamic way of looking at the whole person rather than trying to take addiction and stick it in one simple model. This is what's going to be probably the next popular concept that's going to be uh, popular and a buzzword after the recovery capital. If I'm lucky, this next model will be the one that follows that. And it is what I call the integrated progressive model. Now, remember, I said that the biopsychosocial cultural model just took all of these other models and put it in a big bowl. This model says, wait, 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 you just can't throw them all in the same bowl because they don't all happen at the same time. One of the things that I learned from recovery and in being in the meetings of AA and other recovery meetings is that this is a progressive disease. There's actually a lineal progression that starts with before I'm born and my genetic makeup. Then there's the first time I take my first drink. Then there's the escalation where I'm drinking more frequently for longer periods of time and greater potency to the point where I get to I'm actually an addict. I'm a full-blown active alcoholic, unmanageable and powerless over alcohol. Then there would be a remission where I can find some abstinence where I'm no longer actively drinking or using. And then there would be recovery. Now, all of those different models would fit somewhere on that timeline of progression. So we're gonna take the biopsychosocial model, that's all of the good parts of all the models, and then we're gonna put them in the pieces in line in this progression of the individual. Now, the reason that this could be helpful is for therapists and everyone else, we can start to, to, to pinpoint and focus on where the problem, uh, uh, where the person is in their progression and tailor the best resources that we can for them where they meet them where they are instead of where we want them to be or we, where we assume that they are. 
So this kind of model uh, is actually part of uh, a bigger picture of something that I'm working on uh, at my school, the Ponce Health, uh, Health Sciences University. So finally, um, the big question is that I'm sure a lot of people have that have been convinced of the disease model, and I don't blame you. Uh, I, I, I towed the line on the disease model for a long period of time. I didn't like the disease model being challenged. That bothered me. Um, but the big question is, is if it's not a disease, then what's it? what is it? If addiction is not a disease, then, then Jason, come up with a better answer. And my answer to that is it is a biopsychosocial progressive disorder, or more simply is it's a very complex disorder. Um, but uh, complexity is only just like scratching the surface, as all of us know. This is not an easy answer. Um, no, nothing that I presented, I think, uh, is a well-defined uh, answer for all of it. Uh, it is it is complex. It is nuanced. It is individualized, and um, and it's it's not so easy to put into one box. Um, if it's easy to think of it as a disease and that helps you work in your recovery, use that model. I'm a big fan of whatever works. But when it comes to research and when it comes to therapeutic models, um, I don't know if the disease model is going to be helpful uh, for us when we want to learn more about this disorder. Let's see. I think that's basically it. Um, I'd written some other notes about, there's a lot of stuff that I kind of left out because I had no idea how long I'd be, but I kept it within an hour. So I couldn't surprise myself. I was told that I have the hour following if need be, because I don't know if they actually got anyone after mine. Maybe they thought that my presentation would put you guys all to sleep and, uh, and there would be no need to have a continued <laughs> meeting after mine. So, what I'd like to go ahead and do now is uh, go ahead and open uh, the discussion. Uh, I think somebody had some uh, challenges or some ideas or some questions. Um, again, I want to make sure that I, I let you guys know that what I presented is a, uh, a long list of perspectives, um, a lot of ways of looking at a lot of times the same thing in different ways. I don't believe that there is one single answer that uh, answers all of the uh, uh, all of the questions that we have about it. But I hopefully you guys have a more informed way of being able to discuss this with other people who just say, "Oh, it's just a disease," or "Oh, it's just this." It's a lot more complex than that. We we are complex people. So, does anybody uh, have any comments or would like to? discuss on what we shared or, or had a question. Thank you guys for being so patient hanging in there. I know that was not your common recovery group meeting that you've attended.